Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Ruby Rogues. I'm David Kamira, and today on our panel we have Luke Stutters. Hello. John Epperson. Hey everybody. And today we have a special guest, John Nunemaker. Hello. So John, would you mind giving us a bit about your background, who you are, what you do, and just some uh, cool things about you? Yeah, sure. I currently have two companies that I'm partners in. One is Box Out Sports, and it's uh, like almost like a content management system for social media graphics for like college sports and high school sports and stuff like that. So, you know, you put in data and it creates images. And then the other thing that I have is Fewer and Faster, and it's a company that has had two products, now has one as of this week. So we had Speaker Deck and we had Flipper Cloud and totally unrelated to coming on the podcast. We actually sold Speaker Deck this week and just finished that up today, actually. Oh, um, wow. So that's currently what's going on. And then like in the past, I just love Ruby. Started doing it in 2005 or 2006 and made it on the Rails weblog a couple times, which was fun back in the day when I was working at Notre Dame and a lot of open source code and just love Ruby. So Awesome. And you were an OG at GitHub, if I hear correctly. Yep. Uh, it's 2011 is when I started and I left almost seven years to the day on in 2018. So Awesome. I remember working my tail off to become a senior developer. I read every book I could get my hands on. I went to any conference I could and watched the videos about the things that I thought I needed to learn. And eventually, I got that senior developer job. And then I realized that the rest of my career looked just like where I was now. I mean, where was the rush I got from learning? What was I supposed to do to keep growing? And then I found it. I got the chance to mentor some developers. I started a podcast and helped many more developers. I did screencasts and helped even more developers. I kind of became a dev hero. And now I want to help you become one too. And if you're looking forward to something more than doing the same thing at a different job three years from now, then join the Dev Heroes Accelerator. I'll walk you through the process of building and growing a following and finding people that you can uniquely help as you build the next stage of your career. You can learn more at devheroesaccelerator.com. Well, I think everyone here is familiar with GitHub and all the listeners, so that's yeah, definitely a quite a stretch there. That's pretty cool. So, what are some of the things that you were responsible of building over there? Yeah. So when we started, you can um, blame you. You know, you can yeah, you can blame me for like a <laughs> lot of things. Honestly, anything you can blame me for would always be like so deep in, in dark corners that like you wouldn't you wouldn't even know. There'd just be like some weird outage, and and that would have been my fault. So, most of the public features and stuff like that, I wasn't really involved with. I was on like a lot of the lower level teams and stuff. But initially, it was like. The company that we had, we had like five people and we were good friends with Chris and them. And so he kind of mentioned us just like merging, which obviously it's not a merger. They were like 45 people and we were five. So they acquired us and we started with them and they wanted to get like like more analytics and stuff like that. And we had an analytics product uh, called Gages and they had GitHub pages and we had a CMS. And so it was kind of just like, let's get like a, you know, a little, I think he called it a strike force team, like somebody that already works together really well, five people and just can start attacking problems. So we kind of started and then we all went our separate ways. And I started working on analytics and traffic graphs and stuff like that. So probably 2013 or 14, that was like my only public facing feature probably was traffic graphs when those came out. So you could see like repo stats and refers and stuff like that. We created a system and there's a super old blog post that I wrote. Um, 
for that. That was kind of fun. And then um, beyond that, it was like a lot of lower level stuff. So resiliency and availability. I was on some of uh, those teams for a while. And then towards the end, I was on spam for a little while. So I actually worked on some of the spam fighting stuff and, and stuff like that. But most of it was availability, resiliency, metrics. I absolutely love. I'm like completely addicted to any sort of analytics or tracking, measuring data performance. I just love that stuff. So that's, it's probably all the hidden stuff that you wouldn't see that I, that I would have been involved in, but all the cool stuff that's public that, you know, that people love, like I was just measuring that stuff. That was kind of all I did. So cool. And speaking of blog posts, we're having you on today to talk about one of your blog posts that you published recently back in March. And it is around how to reduce friction at the authorization layer. And so can you give a quick summary of what that blog post is about and why people should go read it? Yeah, for sure. I I think the biggest thing with that one was like, you know, I've done authorization like a bunch of different ways and it's just always painful. Like every time I've worked on anything like that, you know, it involves like, it'll always involve a lot of queries and a lot of checks and a lot of like, you know, enforcement of things. And everything that I've done, either homegrown, like I think, what did I create? I created one that was like cannibal, I think was what it was called because I always have silly names like that. And so you could like include a module and it, it would add like, you know, can, you know, do something on, on like a user model and then, you know, viewable by or creatable by or stuff like that on like a, another one. Um, and I just felt like it was always kind of awkward that like helped a little bit, but it still wasn't quite right because it was always just like, can someone do something like yes or no? And that was what it always was. But I feel like inevitably you always want to tell someone why they can't do something like so if you if you uh, can't delete this object because you don't have enough permission, like you should be able to, you know, you can just hide the icon. That's one option. But there's a lot of times where it'd be nice to like show like, you know, the delete button is disabled and here's why it's disabled. And so like inevitably when you do that, you kind of go in and like you, you have this yes or no. And then if it's yes, you know, you show the button. And if it's no, then you like repeat all, all the logic to like figure out, well, which message do I need to say? Was it because they weren't an org member or were they not a team member or did they, they're a team member, but they don't have permission to manage templates or et cetera, et cetera. It just always felt awkward. And so we were about it one day with Steve Smith, my, my, my business partners. And he was like, hey, it'd be really nice if we just had a message. And I was like, oh yes, that would be amazing. But how would I make that work? Because you don't want to break predicate methods, you know, and all of a sudden return something that's an object and not like, true or false, which is kind of typical in Ruby. And so that's what kind of led me down the path of like, well, how could I make it so that those objects, those methods all worked, but we also had something else. And so I kind of just stuffed an intermediate layer that's like a, you know, a response object of some sort that's like, you know, the result, true or false, but also the message. And then on top of that, made some helper methods to define like the response object, return and the predicate method at the same time. So all the views didn't have to change and all the other places where we were checking those permissions. So I could kind of like slowly migrate to showing, using that to show the messages instead of like inferring or, or coming up with the messages by rerunning the logic again, or pulling the logic to a shared place and then using it in both of those places, all, all things that I had had done before. So that was, that was kind of like where it started was like, well, if we just had a message, that would be super handy. And then like started going down that path and just realized there was a bunch of we're, we're using pundit as well, which is, you know, great, simple, gets the job done. And, you know, of course, then you get to the 
end of it and you write a blog post and then like the first thing is like, oh, hey, I actually built this and it's public, <laughs> somebody else. So there's, so I think it's like uh, action policy or active policy. Um, the Evil Martians crew actually made like a bunch of the stuff that I added, they have in a gem that's public that people can use. And all of mine is just kind of like, you know, hackish layers on top of Pundit to make it a little, a little easier to do. So I think that's the kind of the summary is like, well, what if we had a message? So we didn't have to repeat all this logic to be able to like sanely tell people what's wrong and why they can't do a certain thing. And then kind of how, how to go about that using Pundit, but you could use it with any, any authorization things that you had. And then because we did that, like what was the difference in the end result? And I feel like that part, you know, was really interesting too for me because the difference in the end was like, I actually started using authorization for stuff that I wouldn't have normally used like an, that layer for, because it was like, well, really it's like, yeah, can I do this or not? Like, can I add another actor to a set or can I, is this token, like, can it access the API? Like things that maybe wouldn't have sat in the, in the authorization layer. I started moving to that and it just started feeling really clean. You know, API JSON message responses could literally be that like little reason that comes from, from this little intermediary thing. So have you used action policy then? And any, any so, other project? So I haven't yet. So I saw I okay. saw it and then I was like, okay, well, I'm like, well, how about this? And and they were like, oh yeah, you can do that. And then I was like, well, how about this? And like, so they basically like gave me, I had looked at it and I was like, well, it doesn't do like these three things because it uses exceptions in a lot of places to man manage the flow. And I was kind of trying to like avoid using exceptions for just the authorization side and just, you know, more like, I don't know, predicate and stuff like that. But there's actually ways to do it without exceptions in the views and stuff like that. They have all that kind of built in. So my intention is probably soon BoxOut has like a bunch of custom. It's just all kind of intermixed with the, the model layer. And so I'm going to start extracting those things out into like a policy layer. And so I think I'm going to try it on that and just see how it feels. And if it feels good, then I'll use that and I'll switch, you know, Flipper Cloud to that. And if it doesn't, then I'll just, you know, throw in my magic on top of Pundit and just use it in two places and maintain a gist somewhere for people who want to copy yeah. it or update the blog post. So awesome. I was just kind of curious if you had the ability to directly compare, but no worries. That takes time. I kind of like that idea too of if you don't have access to something, don't just hide it. Gray it out with a hover over tooltip mm -hmm. saying, you know, you're not paying us money to so why don't you subscribe? And then you would get this feature. <laughs> So it's almost kind of like advertising, but not advertising within the site. You mean, yeah. you mean like saying communication's good? <laughs> because it's kind of one of those things where if you don't see it, then it doesn't bother you. But if you do see it, then it reminds you like, oh, yeah, I'm not subscribed yet. It was actually super useful in the API layer for Flipper Cloud because we have tokens. Tokens access the API. Tokens can be enabled or disabled or they could be disabled by the admin. So like somebody like me, I could go in and say, this one's causing problems, turn it off. So like, that's cool. That's easy to handle and say like, well, you know, in your middleware, you say if tokens enabled, like let them through. Otherwise, like it's disabled. Is it disabled like by the admin Then say this message? Otherwise, you know, say this message. It's not like a big deal. But then we were like, oh, well, if people, like you're saying, if people aren't paying us, like they should pay us. And so we were like, oh, well, like how do we want to expose that in the API? And then I discovered there's like a, what is it? Four, four, two, zero or 402. I can't remember what it is, but there's a payment required HTTP status, which I did not know. I was like, 
uh, I'm a source code reader. So I was like looking through the Stripe gem and I was like, oh, there's, I did not th- know this HTTP code existed. So I, I used that. And what was cool is I was able to have a token policy and the token policy like was just like, you know, deny if, you know, not enabled or, or unless enabled. And then it was like, deny if not paying. And like, I could give different reasons for each of those. And then it was like, okay, or just allow it now. Like it's, it's fine after that. And then in the API, API response, they get, you know, JSON with like an error and it has like a little reason and then like a big, you know, message that explains it. And so it actually, like, it became really useful. I hadn't even planned to use it for stuff like that, but then I was like, oh, and then I started thinking of like other places that would be really cool too. So. Yeah. I mean, even when you're not, you know, creating a, even when you're not working on a project, a product, right. Where you're selling stuff, like you're working on like, you know, maybe a backend admin app, right. There's always places where you have these complex rule sets for why people should or should not see something. And everyone's always calling you because they're like, well, Hey, this seems, I I don't know why I can't get here. Can you tell me why? Right. So yeah. You're always working on with those problems and you have to come up with some sort of messaging system, whether you never touch it and just let your people call you up or whether you have some other functionality. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. One way or the other, you're going to have to communicate it. I hadn't really thought about it that like, if you don't add it, you still have to communicate it. You just have to do it yourself instead of letting a computer. So that's, that's interesting. I've been places where we made the cognizant choice not to solve that problem. Or at least not to solve it with computers. So can you tell can you tell us more about this journey? So the interesting thing for me, right? So I use Pundit on tons of apps. So mm-hmm. you you went down this road. I think it wasn't totally clear because you already had Pundit. Yes. Okay. And then, you know, as we went through this journey, you you did a lot of things. It kind of sounds like basically so as I'm reading through this, like it's like half like your journey to fix your problem and half your journey that like I didn't like the API. So I just like made this new API for Pundit that I like. Cool. Very cool. I, I do that all the time when I'm coding. Fair enough. That's kind of my question. Yeah, it, it was definitely that. It started as Pundit. I had used it on a couple other projects. I don't remember where, but I was like, yeah, like, why not? Okay, we'll just try it and see how it goes. I knew it was better than like this, the the cannibal i mean cannibal i i mean arguably i think that's a really good name for a permission thing but but beyond that i knew it just didn't it was probably five ten years old i was like it's not i'm i'm not going to update it pundit had some cool stuff so i was like all right i'll use that and then it was like you get in far enough where you're like now pulling it out is a decent amount of work and like i don't really know exactly what i want i like most of it i just want a little more you know and so I, i guess that's i don't know if that's just something that i normally do or if i just happen to on this one but like I'm usually more of a fan of like, rather than like forking Pundit and trying to like change things and get the changes upstream, just like start hacking on top of it and see, you know, what I can come up with. Um, yeah. And that's kind of how it went. But yeah, I definitely like, and I, you know, Pundit, like you had said, like changing some of the the APIs and stuff like that, like Pundit kind of in the docs and stuff, which maybe it's not, maybe that's not what they're in intent is but you know you write docs you got to come up with them so you come up with examples but like it ties very closely with rest and um like you know index and like like i I just always think about like the thing that i love about ruby is just like it's a conversation like sometimes you read ruby and you're like you just like you're reading someone just like talking to the computer you know and so like saying like i don't know like policy you know organization memberships dot index like that just didn't feel like like, well, what is that? Like, I mean, if you're a Ruby person or if you're like, 
if you've used Fundit before, or you're familiar with REST, like that stuff's real, you know, maybe familiar enough to you can figure it out. But there's a little bit of like incongruence there. And it, and whereas if you have like you know policy like organization like view members, that just felt like it. I, maybe it's just me, but it just felt like it it flowed a little better. It was like you know viewing the members was a little more descriptive to me than like organization membership like you know dot index and stuff like that. So that was kind of where it started. This is like pulling pulling at it a little bit. And then I was like, oh, this can get better. And then pretty soon it was like, you know, you're three days in on this huge refactoring mission. And like, you're smiling every time you look at the code, because you're like, yes, this shiny object is very shiny now. So it's very shiny, but I still haven't <laughs> done what I set out to do. Exactly. Yeah. Awesome. So yeah, I can see it go either way with having something like that view members on a policy object, because that's a bit more descriptive to the context in which you're dealing with. But also can see the arguments for the RESTful style because you see it and then you know, okay, we are dealing with a user controller with an index action. This all pertains to the index action. Almost just like that encapsulation, there's no guesswork involved, mm -hmm. but it's not as readable to a human as it is to the framework that you're using or the conventions that you're using. So... I would say just for anyone out there who's thinking about going one way or the other, I think as long as you're consistent within that project, that's going to be the most important thing. Yeah. I even, I even thought... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, you go, you go ahead. I just have a secondary comment to that. I even thought you were going to say as well like uh, that it would maybe be more to learn because if you are familiar with all those conventions, now you have to think when you go to like authorize something like, is this, what is this named? Is it, you know, is it named view members or is it named index and, you know, or is it named view projects or things like that? Cause that's another, you know, thing that is, that is a little more work is now not everything is named the exact same. It's named, it's a little more fluent, but it's named a little bit different for each one too. So, I, I, but I like you're saying, I think it's consistency, you know, like I always do view members, view projects, you know, stuff like that. And I, Hopefully that helps with it. But yeah, that's a good point. I would argue that, that that whole thing kind of fits along the same kind of lines that the arguments about whether you should make your controllers purely restful, right? Versus allowing like a little bit of, you know, corruption, so to speak, right? <laughs> Sometimes you're just like, you know what? This really does pertain to this resource. And I just want a pretty name, right? And sometimes you're like, nope, actually, what I really care about is organizing my controllers such that my URL gives me the correct resource that I need. And then I only allow RESTful actions upon that. And I feel like it's the same argument here. You, you're making the same trade-off, right? You're, and if for your project, you might decide that, that it makes more sense for you to view members versus have, you know, whatever, organization slash members slash view, right? It's up to you. Yeah. You know, I agree with you, John, that you either should stick to the CRUD style or you should not stick to it. Because I've been in situations where a controller, each action in the controller was just a few lines. It wasn't big. But then they had a hundred different actions within that controller. I'm like, what the heck's going on here? So I think it's okay. And it's, in my opinion, best practices to kind of stick to the crud style, restful style. But it's also okay to deviate away from that. And when I would deviate away from that is in situations where I have a controller with a single action. So if we're talking about a upvote, downvote 
kind of model. So it would be an, a resource inherited underneath a blog post or something. And then it would have a vote action within there. And then that would be the action. There would not be any kind of show index or anything else in there. So that's the only time that in a CRUD RESTful style application, I would deviate away from that is where I can have just one action and one controller. And then it's really simple to still keep in track in your head what's going on. Yeah, that makes total sense. I think part of it too is like I, I started using it in other places. And so then it was like places that, you know, where it wasn't the index action, but I wanted to enforce the same policy. And so then it just felt weird to say like index when I was like, you know, in a background job or um, that, that's a bad example because I wasn't actually doing that. But that that was like where it kind of happened with a few things. And so then I was like, oh, I don't know. This feels a little bit, oh, token was one of them. The token policy, like, or webhook was what it was. In the in the background job, I want to say like, can this webhook sync? And so then like in the, in the controller, you know, like I kind of wanted to use that, like in the controller, it was like send test. Like, can I, can I send a test webhook that's happening. Whereas in the in the background job, it's just like, this might've been in queued because something changed over here, or it might've manually been in queued. But really the only thing, I don't really care how it was in queued. I just care like, can I actually sync and perform this webhook or should I not do it? Which maybe isn't an authorization thing, but it started to feel like it. Like when it, when it was easy to have a message and to do all those kinds of things and tie that stuff in one place. So yeah, I don't know. That's, but yeah, it's, it's a good example of like, I, I feel like, like you're saying, you got to, stick to it where it always makes sense. And then once in a while, like if you deviate, it's okay. And you know, there's, there's no problem with that. So it's just being consistent about when you deviate, I guess. So are you, I, go ahead. Go ahead. I'd like to read something from this article. The, the thing I'd like to read is there it is. Yup. Catch instance, eval memo eyes and all kinds of other shameless tactics to reduce friction and start to enjoy authorization again. What is it about catch, instance eval, and memoize that makes you, that gives you shame, that makes you ashamed? <laughs> that's a really, that's a deep and good question. I don't know if I should feel ashamed. I think it's more that I feel that I should feel ashamed, but then I saw it in Sinatra. And so I was like, if it's in something that's been used a lot, then it's okay, right? Like there must not be a performance problem with it. There must, it must be an okay thing. But yeah, that's a really, that's hilarious. Cause like, I, I think it's just one of those things where like, I remember using catch and throw like one time and I was like, this is so, this just feels wrong, you know? You gotta take like a shower afterwards and stuff. But like, I think it, it's just one of those things where like, it just made it, I was trying to think of like another way to do it. And like the only other way was really like an exception to like stop doing what I'm doing now and like jump out. And then I would have to tack extra data on and there was all these other things. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot about Sinatra and throw and catch. And so that's that's kind of where that went. And the instance eval was was a funky thing so that I could actually like share like the not predicate uh, response object with other policies. So like I can have like flipper features have gates and gates are like, you know, individual actors, percentage of actors, stuff like that. So like, I wanted to have like, can you manage the gates for this feature? But then I also wanted to be like, can you actually like, so yes, you can manage the gates. So show all the forms for managing those gates, but then individually, can you manage each, uh, you know, individual gate as well? And I didn't want to have to check all of those everywhere I was going to show or hide those. So I was like, actually, if I just have manage gates, 
is like, yes, you can go into this kind of general manage area and then have, you know, sub things below it. Then those sub things can just check manage gates in addition to checking other things. And, and instance eval, I believe that was the thing that kind of helped me with that. But yeah, that's pretty funny that you brought that up. You're passing context or whatever. What was that? You're, you're trying to pass context or whatever that you wouldn't get by yes. doing like a yield or something. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I've totally uh, done that before. That's the kind of meat of, unless I'm misreading it, this is the meat of how you managed to make it this clean. Yes. Yep. That is the meat. Yeah. Those, I would say those three, it was the instance eval, the throw catch. The throw catch was, was to allow me to stop the processing chain at any point and return a response. I don't know, actually, I'm kind of curious now how Rails does it in controllers. I'll have to go look, but I noticed it in Sinatra like years ago because uh, I was a fairly heavy Sinatra user on when we built gauges, it was Sinatra. And so I was in the guts all the time trying to figure out how it was working and stuff like that. And so that's where I first saw it. And I thought that was really fascinating, like, because it always seemed like a, a bad thing to do, but like there it was, it was right there. And so I was like, it's in a popular project. How bad can it be? But yeah, the the instance eval was definitely like what you were saying about the yield. It's so that I can have the policy do end inside there, but retain the instance eval of like the the application policy so that I can use all those shortcut methods. There's probably other ways. There probably probably would have been better better ways to in, kind of inject those shared things. That one was easy and quick and got it working. And then I didn't revisit it because the rest of it felt felt nice. But yeah, if I hit hit problems with it someday, then I'll I'll do that. But sometimes I'm I mean we're lazy. We're programmers. Like we're lazy. So I, I get it working. I get it looking nice, get it feeling nice for like the end result. And then if it's slow, I fix it later. <laughs> so this, this is funny that you brought this up, Luke, right? Like, I feel like this reverts back to our metaprogramming conversation from like an episode or two ago. Very much like, so. It's okay to metaprogram, right? We talked about it, right? It's okay to metaprogram, you know, you know, you just have to decide that it's a good time to do it, right? Versus like using it everywhere, you know, we're shoving, we're shoving all the plumbing into a closet. It's fine. And the pipes look really good outside the closet. Well, it's the, the ends justify the means here. It's a wonderfully uh, clean DSL that you end up with. I, I just interest, interesting that, you know, you use the word shame uh, in the context of instance of L. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah, well, I think well, it's no, kind of like... Oh, go ahead. It's kind of like the same lines around a default scope, where if you look to the community, you know, they're going to burn you at the stake. But in certain contexts, it's like, yes, we always need this scope on here, no matter what. It is just a core part of this model. So yeah, just use default scope. It's no problem. Just as long as you're aware of the ramifications that it has. You know, just like doing a lot of metaprogramming, you lose a lot of visibility into one searching for code, depending on how much, how many defined methods and stuff you're doing. But, you know, as long as you know kind of what's going on and you have some good documentation, you know, comments around what's going on there, it's like, yeah, go for it. Just don't make your entire application metaprogramming because then it's just horrible to maintain. I think that's, yeah, that is definitely the key point. Like, and also I would do this on a small team. I would be a lot more careful on a larger team because, you know, on a larger team, like, like you're saying with default scope or other, you know, tools that are maybe more sharp, you know, you can, you can kind of, kind of step in it and, and you can have a lot of problems down the road. 
Whereas with a small team, you can just say, oh yeah, like don't touch that. Like it's, it's fine, you know, and you can kind of work around it. Like at GitHub, I probably would have been a lot more careful about this kind of stuff. But with this, I was like, it's, it's my own app. Like it's fine. It's just me. I know like if I'm going to change things and I did even, I never do this. I, I don't know how you guys were, were picking lots of hills to climb up right now, but like documenting like the code with actual like code comments, like I'm generally averse to that, but I actually did that on a lot of these because I was like, just in case I come back later and I'm like, I don't really remember why I did this or what this was for. Like, um, so yeah, it's like you're saying, you just gotta have trade-offs and say like, if we take the trade-off, then maybe we do something, you know, like this and we put more comments in it and and stuff like, or whatever to kind of, kind of cover it up and keep it safe or tuck it away even in deeper in a lib file or extract it to a gem so no one ever sees it or something, so. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick, and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let, let's face it, grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out Raygun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and you use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at rubyrogues.com slash Raygun. I'm kind of interested this has come out of uh, the Flipper cloud. I, the flip is something I'd seen in passing, but I, ha- I hadn't put connected you to, to the Flipper. And there's some really nice demos on there, including one, I believe, on your um, YouTube channel, where you give it like a live demo of, of adding and removing features. I'd like to be able to do that to people's running web pages, uh, ideally as a punishment, so that I could kind of take features away from users as they use for for example if a kind of someone's using a forum i would very much like to be able to click a button that would actually maybe using stimulus remove the post button from their page as they're viewing it uh, with with a reason uh which we won't repeat here but some kind of customizable message I, I, i'd like to see that in um i'm not sure if i could code it I, mean, I know John could in a stimulus, uh, and I know Dave could, but I think it would require some work. Flipper is not a product I would imagine this kind of policy logic coming out of. Yeah, I mean, so I think the reason it did was just because, well, so the, I think the reason why is because you have anything that you have permissions in you know, of any sort, that's where this starts to come in. And like one of the, I mean, the very first things that even just kind of inspired this was like a potential customer was like, oh, I'd really love to to be able to say like, you know, these teams of people can like manage these features in staging, but like in ops or in production, only ops can. So like 
in production, only the ops people can enable, disable, you know, stuff like that. You know, this team can like view and do whatever they want, but like, you know, they kind of, they, they, they have a strict boundary, like in production, there's only these, whatever X people that can change things that way, I guess, you know, just protection mechanism for them. I think they, they had not HIPAA, but there was some kind of, there was compliance things that they, the reasons that they had to do that. And I was like, Oh, I mean, that makes sense. Cool. Like I'm not a huge fan of permissions. Like we, we go pretty, you know, slim on those, but that's what kind of first started. It was like starting to think through some of that and how I would build it. And I was like, well, this would be super awkward right now to build it. So then I was like, well, what if I just kind of clean this up a little bit, you know, and then it's like, you wake up three days later and you're like, oh, okay. Like I, I, I like this. I probably shouldn't have spent three days on it, but you know, sometimes uh, I think it's worth it. And I tried to write it up real quick too afterwards because I feel like it, it can fade away and then it doesn't feel special anymore. And so I like ran it past a couple of friends that you know I trust that are like good programmers. And I was like, hey, I did this cool thing. Like, what do you think about it? And they were like, oh, that's cool. Like, they, and they got excited about it. So then I thought, okay, I'm definitely gonna you know write it up. But yeah, Flipper. I mean, I think it's just because I was thinking through more complex permissions, and that made me. I didn't want to put it in just because of the framework that I had to express those. And I was like, if I had a better framework to express those, you know, not even like a code framework, but you know what I mean. Like, that would that would help make it easier to add those permissions in, and and me as a developer not feel it, and them as the end user not feel it too. So I think that's kind of where it, where it came from. And actually, I use Flipper a lot inside of uh, policies. So like inside of policies, a lot of the the policies that I use will actually check to see if a feature is enabled, like as the first check. Because if it's not, then we just we just stop which is kind of nice too. So there's a little bit of integration there, but most of it was just coming from trying to think through permissions a different way. To be clear, this was a problem that was happening on Flipper Cloud, not in Flipper, the gem that I installed Correct. on my app. Yep, that's right. Yep. So it was more like, because Flipper, the gem you install on your app is just like, is a feature enabled or not? And so cloud is like, okay, well, that's handy, but yeah, you got to have like organizational structure and members and project collaborators and all these other things, um, you know, permissions to say like, you can or cannot do this. And you could definitely have that in the open source gem as well, but it would be, then you've got a flippers modeled on, a, it, the gem itself is modeled on adapters. And so adapting storage so that people can use feature, feature flags with any storage they want, Redis, Active Record, I don't care, uh, console. And so because it, it works that way. Anything that I do that has to retain state has to be adapted to all the data stores that it supports, which is a lot of work. So that, or I need to start, you know, moving the the domain model down lower to more like a key value, or maybe like also like a few other uh, set, uh, like set a few other data types, you know, and then you could model like just about anything based on those. It's just a little less expressive than, you know, add feature or enable this gate and then letting the adapter figure out how it wants to do it. So I've, I've kicked those back and forth, but yeah, that's, that's kind of where it, where it is different. Yeah. So it's more that all the other stuff. So, so I have a question for you. So the tone of this particular article kind of made, made this question come out and it's just a, a thing that I just always kind of wonder about people, you know, so there's sort of like a, I hate authorization crowd and I like never want to touch it. And there's like, there are actually people that like like it, and I'm just kind of curious. Like, do you do you, do you kind of fit? Like, because I felt like from the tone of this article that you were like, I don't want to be in this space, and I'm glad <laughs> that I'm done, and now I'm out. Bye. That that's also a great question, and yes, that is very true. Like, I have always 
like just despised anything authorization. I mean, I, we we have always intentionally just avoided permissions, like you know the plague, because it's just like it just always complicates things. It and I think part of that reason is because they get intertwined with the models. They get in, intertwined like in the layers where it's not right. Like you legitimately kind of need to have like a policy or authorization layer, you know, where you can kind of control this stuff. And I've tried the other layers and they were kind of awkward too. And so it was like, it, it was always a painful thing to do. And so, yeah, it just like that I was totally in that camp. And then it's like, now after this, I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to like take this or action policy and like put it in box out too. And, you know, I'm like, and then I'm like, oh, I actually really want to work on this, like, like teams and multi-permission for like feature flags. Like you can touch this, but not this and all this kind of, cause I'm like, I think this would actually make it pretty easy. Like I still have, you know, data, database modeling to do to like keep track of who can do what and stuff. But then the, the actual layer is already all written and it's there. And it's just like add one more check in one more in one policy place. And then all the views and the models and everything just automatically propagate update and they just work. So you only have to touch this one layer to add like more complexity, which is really cool. So, so yes, I did despise it. Now I, I'm, I might be like a, yeah, an authorization nut and kind of like, Hey, uh, on this hallway track, maybe we could talk about authorization again, but no. <laughs> yeah. I think we all need some kind of authorization along with our authentication. So authorization, it's one of those fine lines where it's an absolute necessary thing to add into your application. So let's take a very simple blogging application as an example. If I have a user who is an admin or a publisher on this blog, then they should be able to edit any of their own blog articles that they create. They should not be able to edit someone else's blog article that someone else creates. So you don't really need a authorization framework at that point because when you go to search for that record in the edit action or whatever, then you can just scope in your current user.blogpost.find and then you're only going to return the ones that you have created. So I will always try to get away with that kind of stuff first. And it also works in multi-tenant applications where in a multi-tenancy, you can still just do your current organization dot blog post dot find or whatever, and still have that restriction and protection that you're not allowing cross-organization mess of editing someone else's stuff. So if I can get away with that kind of authorization first without bringing in a framework, not only am I more familiar with what's going on with my authorization, but I'm also not adding in any kind of gem dependency, which I think is important for the maintainability of an application. But if it starts to become so granular and very specific, well, we want anyone in this organization to edit a blog post, but we only want them to edit certain fields within a blog post. And then we need to keep more track records of audits, who's doing what. Then I think it's starting to become too much of a pain to manage yourself. And then reaching for something like Paper Trail and then also Pundit makes it a lot easier to do. Yeah, 100%. And I... I love that you said that too, because that was one of the things I was thinking before I came on the show was like, 
I think Pundit has some stuff in there to like apply scopes automatically and do scopes to like find records and stuff. And I've never really used that stuff because I, I just, I go to like stock rails. I'm like, what's the least thing that someone would need to learn to like do this. And like you're talking about, you know, current organization dot blog posts or like author, you know, dot, dot blog posts. And so like flipper, all that cloud, sorry, that all that stuff stays, that stays the same. Everything is scoped and all that stuff. The only, yeah, the only stuff that I use this, this author is, and it, maybe it should be in there. I don't know, but I haven't found a need for it yet. I kind of tend to like the, you know, just the, the standard raise, rails way of doing that. But yeah, it is nice when you get granular, when you go past that and you need to do anything else, then it's, then it is, is nice to have some, something there, but you don't need it for a lot of stuff. Most of it, you can just scope and you're good. I too polite to point out his multiple resources with the guy's blog post from a, a couple of weeks ago, but I am going to shout it out. That was a that was a good watch, and it's uh, is it on YouTube? I think so. Yeah, I think it's a yeah. YouTube one. So yeah, oh, that was uh, that was uh, very interesting uh, as a authentication related post. What is the difference between authentication and authorization? Authentication is. Entering in your username and password, it's verifying who you are in the system. Then authentication or authorization is what does that authorized person have access to within the system? The um, the buildup of rules in the blog post, John, where you've got a nice DSL and then you can create the list of policies, essentially a kind of access control list. Is, is still in code. So this is still a kind of fixed rule set, even though it's a, even though it's a much cleaner one. Have you explored uh, essentially putting that in the data layer, so making that configurable? So that's, yeah, that's super interesting. So I haven't explored it yet, but it's probably going to be relatively soon because that's where I think it'll come in when we start um, locking down to say like, like we add, you know, inside of organizations, you can have teams and teams can have these people on them. And then you need to have, I mean, I feel like then it just goes right into like this other thing, like was it our back or whatever role based authorization control or something like where you need to say like, okay, you've got here are all the things you can do. And so, and then here's a role and this role can do of these things it can do, you know, check, 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 but not all of them. And that's probably, that's for sure going to have to end up being in the database layer, I don't think there's at least storing, you know, the roles and what those roles can do. Now, maybe what those roles can do that can just stay in the code. And then the database is just like relating it somehow. I haven't really went down that path yet to see what I'll do exactly. But it's it would be super interesting. There's a what's the name of it? Maybe SNYK. And they actually it's authorization. It's kind of like the same idea as as Flipper Cloud, but for authorization. So you have like these auth files, a la Amazon and stuff like that. And then I don't know if I got that domain right, but I can get it later for the show notes or something. But they do kind of that kind of thing where you can actually write in like a code, but not maybe more friendly than than just a coder. So somebody who's even not a coder can maybe update the authorization and stuff like that. And then I, th- I assume there's some kind of sync that syncs these files all over and then they have code that applies it. It's kind of a interesting way to centralize the, the authorization. And then make it work across multiple languages and platforms and things like that. I haven't looked at the approach in depth or anything like that. I don't, I can't say like, yes, do it or don't, uh, you know, no, don't. But is that idea of like centralizing the config and then creating mechanisms to disperse the config 
and then creating client libraries that can apply the config, um, which I think is really cool. That's basically what, what cloud is, Flipper Cloud is doing. And I think they're kind of doing the same thing. And so that's kind of that, what you're saying. Like, so how do you move it closer to the, to where it's more configurable without having to like reboot? So runtime control, but yeah, I don't know. That's, that's really interesting, but I, that's as far as I've thought through it. So have you, have you considered storing JavaScript in the database and evaluating it? So it's funny that you bring that up. <laughs> hmm. Uh, yeah. So have you seen WebAssembly? Yes. <laughs> I know. I was like, this could actually be really fascinating. Um, I tried to get it working <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's not for Ruby right now. It's, you know, it's like, what is it like Rust and like one other thing, I think. And I'm like, okay, like that's super interesting. Like this, I think, that I, I think, go ahead. I, I thought you were going to talk about, I think there was a talk at Ruby Kaigi last year with for M Ruby for WebAssembly. Am I imagining that? That's totally possible. Yeah. I'd... Yeah, I think someone did something along those lines. And again, I don't know enough about WebAssembly to say like, yes, this is an amazing idea or like, this is terrible. Why would anyone ever do this? But just the the like, I just go at it from a mental model standpoint of like, my mental model is you can define some code here and then you can run it wherever you want safely without blowing things up and harming people. And I'm like, Okay, that's really cool to me. So because that's one of the things like like Flipper Cloud, the the groups, so you can enable a group and a group is just a dynamic block of code. And inside that code, you get like when you say flipper.enabled question mark, you pass in an actor and then it says, are any groups enabled? Yes, they are. Check if this actor, you know, is a member of that group by executing the code and like, you know, and I'm like, how cool would that be if you could like edit that from Flipper Cloud and it would just sync to your app and it would, you know, and you, and so then you could do the same exact same logic, complex logic, you know, across languages, across platforms and all this stuff. And I'm like, that promise is like, I mean, I, I'm, maybe I'm too excited about feature flags, but like I get goosebumps when I think about it. Cause I'm like, that's really cool. But I was like, this is too hard yet right now. I'm just going to like, wait. And like, so now it's just like, you know, more focused on, you know, like specific problems right in front of me but i i can see a you know a time you know whatever five ten years in the future where like this is totally a doable thing and like people do it and it works great and and they're happy with it in general as happy as one can be when they're using other people's software so nice awesome well should we move on to picks or is there anything else we want to chat about we're kind of rolling up to that time i was gonna i'm gonna, gonna give a quick shout out to the memoization in this blog post because I believe you've had a history of database optimizations. How yes. do you how do you feel about DH8 saying that people don't need DBAs if they run Rails? Spe- uh, speaking as someone who's who's been known to write the odd SQL query. <laughs> I, I mean I definitely my time at GitHub I have like again I think it's just about scale. It's just about what scale you have to work at. So like you know, most apps, you don't get to the scale and, and in a good way, hopefully. I mean, honestly, you want to avoid that kind of scale, like at all costs, because you have to solve problems that aren't fun at that scale. I mean, they're interesting for some people, but not for me. So yeah, I, I but I definitely, the, like, the DBAs that we had were amazing with MySQL. And I learned so much from them, like on indexes, how to get stuff out, all that stuff. So I could never say they weren't valuable at that scale for sure. Yeah, in general, I don't know. I mean, I don't use a DBA for Flipper Cloud, but I've also spent you know seven years in the dark corners on 
on stuff like that. And then, and I've worked on words with friends before that was where I learned most of my performance stuff. So there's between those two things I can get by, but yeah, it's, it's I, other than that, I think probably most people are okay. You can what solve I'm trying it to money. say is, did you, did you really need to memoize that, those calls oh, or the policy? It was, yes. that, was that, was that necessary? I can't not do it. <laughs> I can't not do it. I have to, like, it's just like, I, if I can avoid, if I can avoid, an extra query anywhere. I just avoid it. I, I, I've seen even just like at GitHub, I've seen like where just um, relying on the query cache was too slow on a page because of the amount of like garbage collection that was caused and stuff like that. So once you, what I've let's just put it this, I've seen things. Once you've seen things, then you just, there's some things you're like, I know this is going to rot and it's going to be a problem someday because there's going to be five queries inside it to say like, is this user and this role for this team and this feature, and it's going to do all those things, and I'm just not going to want to do it twice, even to the query cache. So I'm like, I'm just going to memoize it. So. That's the admission I was looking for. That's what I was <laughs> looking for. Is, this is this is post-traumatic code disorder. Yes. Well, and look, you also have to understand that within this memoization is an instance eval of some kind of block. There's like no... At this level, there's no context of what the heck is this thing going to be evaluating? So you have to understand and realize that they may call this particular method that's getting created and then memoized a hundred times in a view. And then otherwise you'd be hitting that query cache every single time in that view, especially if it's on a index where you have a table of records and you want to have a delete button for each one of those items. Well, then you are basically hitting the query in plus one times. But this way, it's all memoized. As a sacrifice of using more memory, you get more performance. And all the data gets preloaded too. I like, it was a little while ago now, but I wrote a post about that too that was, I, I enjoyed that was about data preloading some like weird rail stuff. And so, yeah, like if you preload the data before, then then you you know you don't have to worry about the extra queries later on. And then you also, if you memoize it, you don't have to worry about you know the multiple invocations and stuff like that. So, I there's a lot of stuff where I don't pre memo uh, you know pre optimize. This was the word I was looking for. But it's just some of it's just you can't get it out of your head, and so you just do it automatically. Even though I'll I'll never I don't think I'll ever be at the scale where it would matter. Probably it's just nature now. So. I was I was I was was interested as to why the why why it get memorized. That's a really good answer. Thanks. Awesome. Well, John, if people want to find out what you're up to, what you're doing, or follow you online, where should they go? JohnNoonmaker.com is my website. I'm trying to write there more uh, actively, and then I think JNoonmaker pretty much everywhere else. So GitHub, Twitter, stuff like that. Awesome. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Well, I'm going to go ahead and push us over to picks. Luke, do you want to start us off? Dude, I've got a shameful, a shameful pick this week. This is keep with the theme of coding shame my shameful pick is my shameful ebay purchase i watched a, a youtube video by craft computing about fairly antique sun slash oracle flash 
PCI drives and I went and bought one and wasted all my money because the price had massively gone up and I could have got an NVMe drive, but much less. So that's my first pick. My second pick is Noctua Fans. Continuing the uh, adventures from last week in putting resistors in servers, I haven't stopped doing it. And in fact, I've started putting variable resistors into servers and uh, they get really, really hot and it's really good fun. I realized I had a massive server on halfway through this uh, episode, so I kind of uh, cunningly turned it off. But uh, hopefully the, the fan noise pollutes too much. And my third and final pick this week, alluded to earlier, was Pico Ruby, which used to be called MM Ruby. So MIDI Micro or Micro MIDI Ruby has been renamed to Pico Ruby. A really interesting project. My angle on it is trying to avoid writing MicroPython for, you know, three or four dollar uh, microcontrolling computers. So there we go. Pico Ruby. Awesome. And John, do you have any picks? Yeah. So in recent weeks, I've been having more and more trouble with my Wi-Fi upstairs. And then one day while I was working. So th- the way that it works is I have, you know, my MacBook, right, which is connected via Wi-Fi, as I'm sure it is in everyone else's house because we can no longer plug cables in. I would totally plug a cable in if I could, just because I don't like my internet to get interrupted. But anyway, so my internet like just got interrupted for like an hour and I was like super upset about it. And so I couldn't work and I shouldn't say super upset. For me, it was super upset. I was annoyed and I was like, I'm going to solve this problem. And, you know, my wireless, my wireless thing is like two floors below me. There's some like metal in the way. So, you know, it's always been a thing. But for years, it's been fine. But, you know, I just decided to like bite the bullet and I went and bought a router that I just now have in the room near me so that I can extend my wireless, you know, and everything's great. And uh, while I was out there looking at all the crazy, I haven't bought a router in like four or five years since I bought my Archer C7 or whatever it was, or C9, I don't remember which one I have downstairs, but it's been awesome. And I literally have only ever turned it off when I'm on the phone with my internet company and they're like making me do it. And I don't always do it with them because it's just been great. And so anyway, I wanted a wireless router for my room and I just wanted it for the room. I didn't need it to like broadcast across my whole entire house again. So I just went and picked up this Archer C7. Speaking of internet cutting out, I think yours just cut out for a moment there, John. So I'll go ahead and jump in with some picks. My first pick is Docker is now officially released for the Apple Silicon. It is it hit general availability today, which is April fifteenth. I was going to say I didn't I didn't see that come out. That's that's a that's a fresh announcement. Yes. So it's going to be a week late by the time you hear this, but right now at this moment in time, it is very fresh. So that's been really cool. And along those same lines, I've been using the. Apple M1 MacBook Pro now for a solid month. So I have a regular overpriced Mac Pro, which has way too much RAM and all that stuff. But I've set it aside just because I wanted to give the M1 a fair shot. And honestly, performance-wise, I'm not missing the Mac Pro at all. So I do have a bit of buyer's remorse. Actually, I don't have the buyer's remorse because the Mac Pro has served me well for over a year now. And it's done incredibly well at what I purchased it to do. But the M1, the performance per dollar is just insane. And so it's something that I've been using now for a solid month for all of my 
Ruby on Rails work, Docker work, screencasting, and everything. So it's been really solid. And John, do you have any picks? So yeah, the first John, I thought it was it was me, and I, I panicked, but I had I got some in between now. So I, honestly, my my favorite picks lately they have they are not new to this week, but GitHub.com slash Ankane A N K N E. He just has like a ton of amazing tools. So Blazor is probably one of my favorite, and PG Hero. Those are both really good ones, all around database and reports and stuff. So. Those are probably, those are my default picks to anybody that I talk to that hasn't heard about them. So, yeah. Yeah. He also has Tartkit, Group Date, and then also has started doing some machine learning stuff. So, yeah, it's amazing all the stuff that he turns out. Yeah. It's unreal. Uh, Ahoy is another great one. I just, mm-hmm. uh, I haven't used it yet, but I was telling a friend about it and he like switched his whole thing over. It's like, you know, your own Google Analytics kind of in Postgres or whatever. So there's a lot of really cool stuff. Awesome, John. Well, thanks so much for coming on. It was a lot of fun talking and that's a wrap for now. Thank you for having me. That was that was a blast. You have a new listener now too. Like I sometimes I'm bad, but every time I go on a podcast, I just I instantly become a fan and then I start listening to it going forward. So it's like it's probably not a very uh, feasible way to gain listeners, but it works. It was great. Great meeting you all. One at a time. That's right. Thanks for coming, John. Awesome. Well, we'll talk to everyone later. That's a wrap. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.